The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I'm going to talk a little bit about action today. The Buddha uh, spoke about action uh, just as much as he spoke about liberation uh, in his teachings. Actions of body, of speech, and of mind. And one of the the very last things that uh, the Buddha said, one of the last teachings he gave before he died, um, included an encouragement for his followers to uh, take refuge in themselves. To take refuge in themselves. And when he was asked, what does that mean to take refuge in oneself? He said, it means to take refuge in one's actions. That what distinguishes uh, people who are deprived from people who are who live in abundance is their actions. Actions. So our practice on the cushion is a it's a training of the mind. We develop both uh, both sati awareness, mindfulness, and uh, and samadhi concentration, composure, unification of mind and the composure, the stillness, the purity of samadhi, they give the mind the strength that it needs in order to develop the the discernment, the, the clarity of awareness uh, that is that characterizes sati. And it's sati, it's awareness that can distinguish those actions of body, speech, and mind that lead toward suffering from the ones that lead toward the end of suffering. So as we develop more uh, more sensitivity in our practice, something that I think all of us encounter, I know it's certainly true for me, is the presence of habits or dispositions of mind that have uh, developed over our lifetime, habits that have fueled our actions in the present, actions of body, speech, and mind. Especially, I think, of mind, as we we know that mind is the forerunner of all things. <laughs> Excuse me. And some of these habits that we've developed have certainly, you know, served us well, of course. But I think we tend to also encounter habits that have led to, to dukkha um, in the past and in the present. Working with the hindrances, with um, obstructive emotions, with all the kinds of mental tendencies that have caused us grief, that's often uh, a big part of our practice. And we want to work with them so that they become uh, compost for awakening rather than cause for more grief, for more disappointment, more dismay. So... You know, where do these uh, unhelpful tendencies of mind arise? What conditions they're arising? In the uh, the Dveda Vitaka Sutta, which is uh, number 19 in the in the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle length discourses of the Buddha, the it, literally the title means two kinds of thinking in that sutta. Uh, the Buddha describes recognizing before he became awakened that he could separate his thoughts into two categories, categories of sensuality, ill will, and cruelty. And then on the other hand, their opposites, thoughts of uh, renunciation, non-ill will, and non-cruelty. And uh, 
after the Buddha describes these uh, these six different ways of thinking in two categories, then he went on in this sutta to examine each one, one by one, uh, the results of thinking in each each one of those categories. And he did it in a really systematic way that's uh, described repeatedly in the in the suttas. Was there benefit or was there harm to self, to other, or to both, or to the world in each of those six ways of thinking? Does that, that make sense to you? <laughs> it's, it's a lot of categories <laughs> following that, that logic. So after, as an example, after thoughts of goodwill, he would ask himself, was there benefit or harm as a result of those thoughts to self, to other, or to both? And after thoughts of non-cruelty or thoughts of renunciation, he'd ask the same question. And then also with the other kinds of, uh, the other three, ill will, cruelty, and sensual desire. Same question, was there benefit to self, others, both, or the world? in thinking those thoughts. And that was the first way that the Buddha described uh, thinking about those two kinds, those two kind of categories of thought. Was there benefit or was there harm? And then he followed that uh, by asking himself whether the thoughts were onward leading, that is, towards liberation, or not. So is there harm or benefit now in the present? And is this action or thought, is it tending toward freedom in the future or tending towards bondage? And as I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear, he uh, he came to the conclusion that thoughts of sensuality, ill will, or cruelty led both to uh, harm in the present and towards bondage in the future. And those arising from renunciation, non-ill will. And often, you know, we speak of these in the positive. We say goodwill. We say metta and non-cruelty or compassion. Um, that those kinds of thoughts led both to benefit now and towards freedom in the future. They were onward leading. And if you're familiar with the Noble Eightfold Path, as I, I assume probably you are, you might recognize these categories, renunciation, uh, non-ill will, and non-cruelty. They, they are the three attitudes of mind that make up uh, wise or right intention, the, the second uh, factor of the Eightfold Path. And their opposites we call unwise attention or wrong intention. Intention, I said, not attention. So when the when the Buddha saw the difference between uh, the results of these kinds of actions, mental actions, he said that he abandoned those thoughts that arose out of sensuality, ill will, and cruelty. So he didn't describe exactly how he did that, how he abandoned uh, those thoughts. And maybe we've encountered those kinds of thoughts in ourselves. And uh, personally, and my experience has been that they don't just go away when I recognize that uh, that they aren't healthy, and I prefer that they didn't arise. There's habit energy behind those kinds of thinking and that has to be undermined. And uh, the next passage in this sutta, the Dveda Vidaka Sutta, um, it gives us a path uh, towards undermining and then eventually uh, uh, abandoning the kinds of thinking that lead to that lead to harm, to dukkha, that lead away from liberation, from freedom, peace, ease. 
And it's a very widely repeated teaching. You've probably heard it before, probably heard it often before. Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of one's mind. Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of one's mind. So it's a very it's a very simple and really profound teaching. Thoughts of sensual desire, of ill will and cruelty, you know, they incline if we have thoughts like that, if we uh, welcome them, if we kind of uh, keep them going, they they tend to incline the mind in the direction of more um, sensual desire, ill will, and cruelty. And I don't think that's what we want the uh, the direction of our minds, the inclination of our minds to be. So the Buddha set the intention to cultivate thoughts of renunciation, non-ill will, and non-hostility, non-cruelty. And we can do the same. And when we do that, when we intentionally bring more skillful ways of thinking into our minds, then we can look at the result. You know, was there harm or was there benefit, just as the Buddha did? So there are there are lots of su- uh, suggestions in the in the suttas um, for ways to move from unwholesome to wholesome thinking or other forms of action in our lives, and. Uh, in my experience, um, I've found that I'm, I won't make the effort to change anything that's challenging, that's habitual kind of in my, in my mind, that gives rise to dukkha in a kind of habitual way, unless I first really recognize the harm that's arising from the thought or action, until I become really aware, aware in my body uh, of the dukkha of it, and see clearly how it's how it's binding me, how it's harming others, how it's keeping my mind from experiencing freedom and peace. Just knowing intellectually that our our thoughts of anger, our ill will, our greedy desire are are said to be unwholesome, that's not going to be enough. I have to feel the dukkha of the unskillful ways of thinking or acting, or the inclination in my mind is still going to lead in those directions. That's been my experience. And of course, the opposite is true as well. Happily, <laughs> when there's goodwill, when there's compassion, when there's an attitude of letting go in the mind, of generosity, feeling the result of that, ease, openness, delight even, you know, that conditions the mind, inclines the mind in the direction of more of the same, the direction of freedom. So. Awareness, of course, is really essential in this process. To be clearly aware of what's going on inside us is how we discern the effects of these two categories of thoughts on our hearts and minds. And one way of describing and kind of categorizing these three unwholesome kinds of thinking that the Buddha outlines is, is to call them reactivity. Reactivity in the mind. And that a really useful way, I think, to discriminate between um, reactivity and more wholesome kinds of thinking of mental activity is to tune into what they feel like in the body, to turn our awareness towards our bodily experience. When there's reactivity in the mind, there tends to be 
in my experience, tension, contraction in the body and in the mind as well. When what is arising from a more wholesome place, the impulses of goodwill, kindness, generosity, all those lovely states, there's a feeling of, of openness, of ease that's, that's in both the mind and in the body. And I think for those of us who've been practicing uh, mindful awareness, sati, for, for a while, we can use it, this kind of a, a litmus test. Is this, is this thinking, is it accompanied by tension, by contraction, or is it accompanied by ease, by openness? And that's a real a first step, I think, in, in the mind's movement to abandoning the unskillful, to, to incline in the direction of the skillful, sensing into the difference in the, the energetic quality of the thinking, what it feels like in the body. And when we're aware that's what, that what's going on in our minds is tense, is tending toward harm, tending away from inner freedom, then we can begin working with the thinking uh, directly as well. So, for example, here's some advice from the Buddha for working with thoughts of ill will. This is a quote from a sutta, and I didn't write down the sutta reference, but it's, I know it's in the Majjhima. <clears throat> there are objects causing aversion, frequently giving unwise attention to them. This is the nourishment for the arising of ill will that has not yet arisen and for the increase and strengthening of ill will that has already arisen. So he's talking about unwise attention. There are objects causing aversion, frequently giving attention to them that nourishes the arising of ill will. So when we, when we turn our attention to things that we know already give rise to aversion within us, and when we think about them, that's likely to give rise to more aversion. Unwise attention is a, it's a really important uh, topic, I think, in our practice. So it's considered unwise to pay attention to those things <clears throat> which cause an increase in the hindrances, in the defilements, greed, hatred, delusion. So we notice when we give our attention to something, first, what does it feel like? You know, is the mind tense or is it relaxed and open? What's the result in our state when we pay attention to this particular topic, this particular activity, this particular person, maybe, this particular news story, maybe. Is it harmful or is it beneficial? We tune into the quality of our mental state as a consequence of turning our attention to any particular object. That's clear. You know, maybe the object is a new baby, a sunset, something beautiful. Maybe it's something that we know is going to rile us up. Often uh, we might turn attention to things that give rise to aversion because I'm thinking especially of the news, you know, over the, the current uh, time in our, in our lives in the world, because we feel a need to be informed so that we can respond appropriately to what's going on in our lives, in our communities, in the world. And personally, I think that's very important. It's important to be informed. But equally often, uh, the mind gets sucked into a lot of detail that doesn't necessarily uh, inform our understanding anymore of what's going on. 
or lead us to be able to respond more wisely, more effectively. On the contrary, it just feeds any kind of existing inclination towards ill will, towards fear, towards hatred even. It reinforces the judgments that we already hold about uh, the situation, inclining the mind in an unskillful direction. As the Buddha said, there are objects causing aversion, frequently giving unwise attention to them. This is the nourishment for the arising of ill will that has not yet arisen and for the increase and strengthening of ill will that has already arisen. And of course, you know, despite our good intentions, and I trust that we all have really good intentions, that happens. You know, we give attention to what causes aversion. And then, you know, what do we do with that when we recognize, okay, there's a thought of ill will has arisen in the mind, to use the, the Buddhist language. Something very useful, again, I think, is to turn toward that uh, sense of tension that accompanies uh, reactive thinking, to feel into the dukkha in it, to incline the mind away from the tension and dukkha towards what is wholesome, what is uplifting, toward what brightens the mind. We soften the mind, we breathe, we can center ourselves in that place where uh, there is ease, where there's openness. We can turn our attention elsewhere. Here's a suggestion from the Buddha. There is the liberation of the heart by loving kindness. Frequently giving wise attention to it. This is the denourishing of the arising of ill will that has not yet arisen and the decrease of or and weakening of ill will that has already arisen. That's a follow on to the, uh, to the quote I read before. And actually it's from the Samyutta Nikaya. It's uh, uh, 4651, 46.51 in the Samyutta. So it's about wise attention and unwise attention. So metta, deliberately turning the mind towards goodwill, towards metta. It's a practice. It's a discipline, you know, and it's very, very useful. Turning the mind towards what's beautiful, towards what we know uplifts us, you know, to the places where we find, uh, um, you know, the source of the opening to, uh, to a more free state of mind, to a peaceful, peaceful state of mind. Sometimes when we get kind of hooked into uh, unwise attention to uh, those things which uh, cause the arising of, uh, of aversion in the mind, it, sometimes uh, what's arisen in the mind is so strong and compelling that we can't see around it. It doesn't feel like we can see around it or turn away from it. There's a, a description of that in the suttas that I think is really uh, evocative. If there's a pot of water heated on the fire, the water seething and boiling, a person with a normal faculty of sight looking into it could not properly recognize and see the image of their own face. In the same way, when one's mind is possessed by ill will, overpowered by ill will, one cannot properly see the escape from ill will which has arisen. 
then one does not properly understand and see one's own welfare or that of another or that of both. And also, texts memorized a long time ago do not come into one's mind, not to speak of those not memorized. (laughs) So um, that passage, it points to how sometimes when we're in the grip of something, you know, it doesn't have to be ill will. Of course, it could be strong desire. It could be fear. It could be anxiety. When we're in the grip of something, in addition to not seeing the dukkha that's arising from it or the harm that could come from it, we even forget the tools that we have. You know, maybe we haven't memorized a lot of uh, suttas, but we know we have tools that can help us, and we forget about them sometimes. We can't even remember the teachings or practices that might help us deal with it. So in a state like that, when that happens... We, the first thing we need to do is to pause and regroup, you know. Knowing that the mind can move between the world of reactivity and the world of the wholesome, of what, what emerges from, uh, from the beautiful places within us, beneficial thinking. We know we can pull back from the reactive and pause. We can just let the mind reset. It takes effort, actually, to do that, is to pull back to pause, to regroup. We can drop into our present moment awareness, really, to into our experience of what's going on. <clears throat> Excuse me. R- really uh, sensing into what's happening in our bodies and minds, becoming intimate with the feeling that we're in the grip of. We feel into the physical manifestation in us. We, we key into the dukkha in it. For me, this feeling of ill will, there's often a tangible kind of clutching pain in my heart. There's my throat and jaw will be constricted. My breath will be thin, not full. There's tension. There's not ease. So we turn our attention from the object, that which is giving rise to aversion, to the actual feeling of aversion within our bodies. I have a lot of faith uh, in that, in being willing to feel the pain of unskillful thinking or other unskillful action, actions of word, speech, and and of body as well. Feeling the pain of those, it really really helps to uh, allow us to stop feeding it, stop nourishing it. The Buddha talks about nourishing a lot in in the suttas. We move attention from what the mind is reacting to, to the pain itself of the reactivity. Attention to the pain itself. That is wise attention. That's not unwise attention. Feeling the dukkha, seeing clearly that this thinking is not leading to, to, to benefit, but leading to harm for self. Not leading towards freedom, but leading away from it then we can begin to use other skillful means to uh, to move into a, a beneficial mind state. And even if there is uh, ill will in the mind, you know, if it doesn't dissolve completely, we can restrain our speech. We can hold back from speaking at all, acting in any outward way at all, if that's necessary. We can teach ourselves the Dharma, which is something that uh, the Tibetan Buddhist teacher Pema Chodron speaks of teaching ourselves the Dharma when we're in a place where we feel kind of stuck, 
We recall what we know. We remember it. <clears throat> Sometimes when we're in the grip of something that we know is not wholesome, we just need to tell ourselves, I need to stop right here. I need to practice restraint. And I think probably most of us have some skill in that area, being able to stop. Nobody sees what's in our minds, you know, except us. <laughs> Sometimes it shows on our faces, probably, and in our posture. Um, so the, the motivation for being attentive to what arises uh, in our minds, you know, what's privately arising in us, it has to come from within. It has to be an internal uh, motivation. Paying attention to the effect on our hearts and minds, our own hearts and minds, of the of these two kinds of thinking that the Buddha spoke of. Feeling the contraction, the dukkha that arises when there are thoughts of ill will, of sensual desire and greed. That's where we find the motivation, I think, to uh, to think and ponder upon the kinds of thinking that incline the mind toward generosity, towards metta and compassion, towards truth, patience, diligence, you know, all the, um, all the paramis, the perfections of the heart. Feeling the effect of reactivity on our hearts and minds that motivates us to come more and more from a, from a peaceful, caring place, a place that I know is, uh, exists in all of us. The Buddha often spoke about uh, what is wholesome or skillful and unwholesome or unskillful. These the words in Pali, kusala and akusala, qualities and actions that are beautiful or not beautiful in terms of feeding and starving. He's, he he often used those uh, those those metaphors, similes of feeding and starving. So we have the power to feed the skillful qualities and starve those that lead to dukkha. And that's that's how we incline the mind towards what's onward leading, what's freeing. Feeding our generosity, feeding our metta, our kindness, our discernment, our awareness, and starving those uh, mental tendencies that tend to to shrink the mind, to uh, wither and constrict the mind. When we do this, we're putting in uh, conditions for uh, more peace, and more freedom in our lives. In this um, same teaching on two kinds of thinking, the the Buddha compares this uh, gradual change in the inclination of the mind to the way a cowherd um, needs to watch the cows very carefully when the crops are growing in the field to make sure that the cows don't stray into the uh, the the crops and destroy, destroy them, trample them. And, uh, but once the mind has learned to stay out of the crops, once the mind has learned to incline toward uh, thinking and pondering upon goodwill and simplicity and compassion and avoiding unwise attention, then we can be like the cowherd uh, uh, later in the season after the crops have been harvested and, um, the way that it's described is that uh, the cowherd can just sit under a tree and kind of, uh, you know, relax and let the cows graze where they will, knowing that they won't stray into places where they could create harm, harm for themselves and harm for others. 
the inclination of the mind can be trusted at that point. And that's the direction I think we're all moving in. A place where we can trust, you know, we can trust our minds. So action, you know, I started out by saying I was going to talk about action. And really, I've, I've only really spoken about action of mind. But that is the action that drives the rest of uh, the rest of our action. That's what carries us forward in this life that creates the conditions for our, our future uh, behavior, our future actions. It's the driving force in our lives. So to align our actions with intentions that lead to benefit, not to harm for ourselves, for others, for both, to actions that lead away from suffering, towards freedom, towards freedom of heart and mind. That's a really big part of our practice. And then uh, when we do that, then as the Buddha advised uh, towards the very end of his life, we can take refuge in our actions and we can feel secure in doing that. We can feel safe. So, thank you. That's what I have for this morning. And uh, and now I'd like to just open it up to any uh, comments or questions that anyone has. And if you could raise your Zoom hand, that would be helpful to me so I can see. I see. Is it June or is it, is your name pronounced June? Yeah, go yes. ahead. Yeah. Um, so, how any recommendations on dealing with unwholesome fear? Like, is is the recommendation to feel the effect of the fear and uh, feel the suffering, and then to be able to release from 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 the fear? I think yeah. Fear is and fear is a little. You know, it's different from. Uh, from ill will, it is a kind of aversive state, but sometimes it's uh, it's it makes sense to have fear, you know, when there actually is danger. So to to distinguish between the fear that makes sense and the fear that is just arising, uh, you know, out of past conditioning is that first we have to do that. I think to recognize is this fear is it a sensible fear or is it not. But if it's like a general anxiety, you know, just a kind of future-oriented fear, then um, uh, really paying attention to what's happening now, being really connected to, okay, what's am I safe now? Are things, you know, how 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 are things right now? What's my state? What's actually happening? That can be helpful in in uh, you know in uh, helping us to discern whether or not the fear is something that we want to uh, follow, but it's uh, it is it is a little bit different. I think, and it, it I mean, it's usually a, a fear that is related to a particular um, event or uh, a situation that that's more easy to deal with in a kind of. Uh, discerning way a discriminatory discriminatory way where we can see is this is this sensible to have is there is it sensible to have fear about this or is it not 
that's more, it's easier to d deal with that kind of fear than when there is a kind of generalized anxiety that's just related to um, anticipation of something bad happening in the future that doesn't have a shape, that's more vague, that's that's more uh, uncertain. So um, what? which area of fear is more prominent, do you think, in you? Is it something specific or is it a generalized kind of? Feeling. general yeah uh-huh that takes more work i think it's uh you know the there is um uh imc is offering a a class called the path of fearlessness it's starting uh it's starting actually i think in three days i think it's the 26th that it's going to start taught by um diana clark and tanya weiser and it's a repeat of a class that that Gil and Diana and Max taught a few years ago. It's a really, uh, really useful class. I, I took it a few years ago. It's, it goes on for several months with a um, once a month all day meeting. And then there'll be meetings in between with small groups of people and readings and stuff. And it's really, it talks about working with fear in all kinds of different ways that, uh, that, that can be uh, really useful, really helpful. And coming to a place of fearlessness. Yeah. Thanks, Jen. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. Yeah, I'm sorry. I can't do, I can't really, I can't, it's, fear is a, is a complex <laughs> kind of topic. And I, I, I couldn't really give you a, you know, a silver bullet for that. Thanks for all the information. Very helpful. Somebody else. So connecting, connecting with uh, what is uplifting, what is beautiful in our world, in our lives, you know, even just looking out a window and seeing, uh, seeing trees, seeing uh, whatever is uh, beautiful in your environment, whatever is kind of supportive of, uh, uh, of a heart that's open and uh, and without fear, that's a, that's a really useful thing to do. Um, whether there's fear or ill will or just a sense of, you know, kind of uh, disappointment with something, you know, with with the world or with our own behavior or with people in our lives. It's always uh, useful to connect with what is wholesome and uh, allow that to, to uplift us to come to a place of more balance, and then we can deal with what's difficult more, uh, with more skill, with more uh, ease, a little bit more. It's not always easy, though. So, Shani, just to add on that, um, so it's not about avoiding, right? It's, okay, so it will... Once we are stable, and then we can come back to what what triggered the aversion. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's uh -huh. yes, uh huh. That's part of it for sure. Yeah, develop it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Suchi, hi. hi. Thank you for taking my call. My question. Um, so uh, you were talking about turning our attention from objects that cause aversion and unwelcome 
downstream effects uh-huh. to to wholesome to to basically shifting attention yeah becoming aware that this object is causing something that's not a good feeling and shifting attention to something more wholesome um is it different and how is it different from what we commonly refer to as distraction uh-huh. that's a good question <laughs> i yeah, like i am feeling this is bothering me and uh-huh. so i'm going to go distract myself with some which what at that moment i'm thinking is a full is an activity but may eventually lead to actually become unwholesome but 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 if you can elaborate on that thank you uh-huh. very much Yeah, I think it's an area where you need to use discernment, you know, I think because uh, sometimes it's better just to be present to the aversion, to be present to the aversion itself, but not to be not to get hooked into the uh, the content, you know, what has given rise to the aversion. That's the that's the difficult uh, place to discriminate sometimes we can pay attention to the aversion okay there is anger arising in me or in me or there's ill will arising in me um and then immediately often the mind will go to it's that's that's the cause over there that person situation whatever it is that's the cause and that's what we want to avoid is is that giving giving unwise attention to the, what causes the aversion but to give but to give attention to the aversion itself that's wise that's why so see the distinction there and uh, yeah so if you if you if we just turn away and don't deal with the aversion itself it's just going to keep coming back of course it's not it's when we distract ourselves or use a uh, use spiritual bypassing you know which is kind of a similar thing use some other some transcendent teach, teaching in order to avoid uh, what's uh, difficult in the moment yeah uh-huh. does that make sense then it's it's the yeah. between paying attention to the the feeling itself and the content the content is what uh we know if we give attention to that it will cause aversion so it's it's more about sort of preventing looking at it in the first place mm-hmm. um and, you- and yeah, yeah. would would it be correct to then say that um we pay attention to the aversion itself and then if we are trained in mindfulness then the aversion will rise and pass away um uh, instead of getting hooked on to the source and going down that path yeah, well, that be uh uh-huh, that's the hope <laughs> okay if we're trained in mindfulness um we'll see the we'll see the passing of the aversion um, we'll see the passing of the aversion yeah as long as we don't feed it by you know just adding more content yeah uh uh-huh. don't, don't feed it yeah don't, don't feed it No, don't feed it starve it <laughs> thank you thank you thanks you